I want to show you some signs up on the screen there. You'll recognize these, I'm sure, being Aussies. Uh, so, <coughs> and the next slide, thank you, Ricky. What are these? Top left. Yeah, so when you see that sign, what do you do? You don't go left, one on the right. <laughs> you don't go down there. Uh, the one on the bottom right. Hey, someone tell me, get you right. What do you do when you see that? You're meant to stop for at least three seconds. Yeah, right. And give way. And give way. <laughs> Don't you stop and carry on. Stop, give way, and then go, okay? You're meant to absolutely stop. And what about the bottom left? What do you do when you see that? <laughs> it is not an advisory sign. Yes, that's right. Not the lower, the upper. Okay, it's something I had to learn as a young driver. Look, here's the reality. When we see these signs, what's our normal as Australian citizens or visitors who've signed up to respect the government, what's our normal response to them? To obey them. Seriously, yeah? It's what we do. And look, let me tell you something, I mean, just in case you didn't know. We'll have the next slide. Right. If you disobey some of those signs... Look at that bottom one. If you disobey the speed limit by 45 Ks, not only do you pay nearly a $1,000 fine, but you're instantly banned. Seriously. Just for one speeding offence. This is why I walked to church this morning. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So there is a reality. I've noticed in Australia over Britain, you guys are much better and obeying or keeping to your speed limits. Seriously, you might not think you are, but way better than us in Britain. And a simple reason is that your deterrence are really, really severe. And it works. I think that's the point, you see. Deterrence works. And so let me take the chapter 3 of Daniel. We have Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, there's the original names. They've undergone name changes, as we've already been told. So the three of them become, I need to remember myself, uh, brain freeze moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and the place in Victoria, Abednego. <laughs> so they had a name change, which is important to what's going on here. We'll come to that, I'm sure, in due time. Stay now in the story before us unfolding. We've heard it read already face the most powerful man in the world. And I think you have to remember what's going on here, friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will refer to them by, by their new uh, Babylonian names. Face and take on the most powerful man in the world. That's where we're heading to. That's where it leads to. And we will see that they face and stand against him in disobedience. And the question we're asking is, why? What would possess these three men to oppose the most powerful man in the world? Let's look at it. Hope and, hope and grace in trial is our heading, series heading. And I wanted to give you just one subheading for today again. One subheading, simply this. Reverence for God is marked by unconditional obedience to his word. Reverence for God 
is marked by unconditional obedience to his word. So Nebuchadnezzar makes a gold statue. It's a bizarre thing in the light of chapter, chapter 2. Why do we say it's a bizarre thing in the light of chapter 2? How do we finish off yes, yesterday? feels like yesterday sometimes. Last week, how do we finish off? What was the scenario? Can anyone remember it? How do we finish off last week? Daniel interprets the king's dream and consequently he gets elevated as well as his chums. The king is favourable towards, towards their God, understands that only the God of heaven is to be worshipped. Chapter 3, he now sets up this image who, and he wants it to be worshipped. So there's been at least some time elapse here. Enough time for the king to completely forget Daniel's God and instead set up this statue for worship. It's a bizarre statue. Normally, uh, if you click it once, please, uh, Ricky. Oh, it's disappeared for some reason. Normally, look, we imagine, we imagine, don't we, the statue is this huge, long statue of Nebuchadnezzar. No one knows what it really looked like because this thing is not just 90 feet high, it's 90 feet wide. Whatever it was, it was colossal and not perhaps just what we imagine as some gold figure standing up. Nevertheless, so Daniel chapter 2, 47, the king was favourably disposed towards these three men. Something has changed for him now to be setting up an alternative God to the God of these men. Let's move on. Verse 2, he then summoned... Listen to these. The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials. It's a huge collection of people. And repeated. Verse 3 is virtually uh, a repetition of verse 2. So can you see? We're suggesting that Daniel is the author here. So he's taken these details down. These are his memoirs. He lists all these officials and then repeats the fact What's, he trying to, what's the message he's trying to get across to us? So the king has set up an occasion. He's got this statue. We're going to look at what, what's going to be done to him shortly. He's called all these officials. The scenario being set before us, can you see, is one where non-conformity is unthinkable. So that's the point. Can you see what's being painted here? Here's a scenario where to think that you could step out of line in the front of all these officials, this, all these men and women, is absolutely unthinkable. This is, this is where this story is heading. So conformity to what? Listen to this, verses 4, 5 and 6. You must see, he's got his statue, he's set up, and these are his words, or the words of his herald. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need to speak for himself. Someone can speak for him. So, okay, so verse 4. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. I personally can't see a lot wrong with that. And here's the thing, what's the big deal? I mean, all the king wants us to do, I mean, after all, he's got all these dignitaries, he just wants us to demonstrate that we're coming under his authority. And, you know, I, for one, am quite happy to come under this king's authority, particularly if it means burning fire. And when you think about it, I don't think it's such a tall order. 
And so consequently, all the subjects... Oh, wait, listen to this. Verse 7. All the people, all of them, nations, men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold. And that's really the end of the story. And you may be pleased to hear me say, that's all we're doing today. If that really was the end of the story, <laughs> that is. Because the story's only just beginning. Listen to this, it's only just beginning. You'd think that that was the end, wouldn't you? They all obey, I mean, let's all go home. What's the big deal? But there is a big deal, listen to this, verse eight. There is a big deal. At this time, some of the astrologers, the wise men, Daniel's gang, remember? Some of the wise men, or the astrologers in, uh, specifically, came forward and denounced the Jews. Why? Why? Listen to this, verse 9. So, so the king said to Nebuchadnezzar, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, <laughs> you've issued a decree, O king, that everyone must fall down and worship the image of gold. We know that, yeah. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely... Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to the king. They neither serve your God or nor worship your image that you've set up. So the scenario is, king, we want you to know, king, in this, in this thing that you've set up, when you've called all your officials, when you've just asked that we bow, these people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the, the Jewish exiles are refusing to honour you. Why, why do you think they're so interested in them? Someone tell me, why are these astrologers so interested in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Just think of human nature. Someone tell me, why are they so interested in them? Jealousy. Jealousy. And why do you say that? Absolutely. They're superseding, going beyond probably the astrologers. Remember, they've come in, uh, they've, they've taken on Babylonian teaching and excelled, excelled in it. His Daniel interprets the king's dreams and as a consequence. Uh, not only is Daniel uh, raised to a higher profile, his three friends are. So you can imagine these astrologers and wise men, whoever they are, watching these foreigners. Reminds me of like inviting a foreigner into your country before you know it is your pastor. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, that arouses jealousy, right? So you can see what's going on here. Uh, these guys are thinking, hey, hey, you know, what's going on? They're foreigners. And here they are, stepping up over us, having responsibility over us. And so, uh, and so something of their jealous nature then is coming out here. So as the tension mounts, we're moving towards, towards a crescendo, and yet we're not quite there. The king, so it was the king who'd already promoted them. So although it's been some time, we have to still assume that the king has, is still favorable towards them in some sense. Listen to this, Daniel 2, 49. It was the king who appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, as administrators over the province. And so here he is, torn between his favour towards these guys 
and torn between his pride was his idea. And boy, is he now thinking, why did I do that? We have to assume because of his favour towards Daniel and these men that the king actually wants to protect them. And I think that's what's behind what's going on next. Rather than just throw them into the fire, it's, it's almost as though he's, verse 14, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true? Guys, give me something. Do you realise that your lives are under threat here? I don't want to do this. We'll see in chapter 6 a very similar situation with King Darius. Nebuchadnezzar, for all his faults, realizes he has something in these three men, seen something perhaps of God in them, and under duress now, he's almost pleading with them, guys, give me something, just do it once. Listen, listen to this. Look, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not worship my gods? Daniel is missing here, do you notice that? Where's Daniel? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We can only assume that being of a higher rank, that he wasn't, he's bowing or non-bowing, and we can be very sure Daniel would not have bowed. Look what he does in chapter 6. Wasn't visible, observable by this gang who've got it in for these three underdogs. And what about the rest of the Jews? Where are they? Again, I don't know. I don't want to be overly hard on them and suggest they're all bowing. But I think what's going on here, friends, is that these astrologers are just interested in these three men who've got one up on them. And so the lineup is not fair, but it's what it is. And so there's professional jealousy at work here. They've been, verse 12, set over the affairs of the province. They've been raised higher. So the king coming before them gives them this opportunity. Is it true? Please say it's not. I wonder if you've ever been put in that situation. Has anybody here? Let me ask, seriously. Have we ever found ourselves in a situation where we're asked directly, is it true that you're a Christian? I don't think I have. Not, in, not, in a, not under a threatening scenario. I don't know how I would respond if I was standing and I had, had, to, had to stand for Jesus on the pain of death. If I'm honest... I don't think I don't think I could have said, could say yes. I don't think I'm this may disappoint you, but I, I don't think I have that kind of courage. Oh hallelujah, may that be the case. But you know, standing here, I can't imagine, I just can't imagine what these guys do. Listen to them, just listen to them. It's 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 absolutely incredible. What do we do? In our, in our hour of trial, listen, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's finest hour. Verse 18, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Wow. But why? 
what is it? Why, why won't these three men just do this thing? Why won't they comply with the king's command? Someone tell me. It begins, let me give you a clue. It begins with an E. And it's got the letter X in the word. Why won't they comply? Begins with an E, and it's got the letter X in the word. There's that, there's that, but there's one word that sums it up. It begins with an E, and it's got an X in the word. It is that, that sums it up, but you've used two words. Well, it doesn't quite work without the devotion, but th that is the answer. But there's, there's, there's a single word, and it's staring us in the face. It's what we did in the first week when we looked at Daniel. Where are they? Why are they there? They're in exile. There's one word for, for summing up why, why uh, Meshach, Abednego, Shadrach will not bow to the king. Exile. Why are they in exile? Why is Shadrach here in a foreign country? Why is he in exile? Because, yeah, why? But, but why? That is true. Why? That's exactly the point. The Jewish people did what to other gods? They bowed down to them. The simple quintessential reason that Shadrach is standing before this king is because his ancestors did what? Bowed to king, to gods. They did the very thing and it's almost like you're asking me to do the very thing that has put me here in the first place. No! I think that's the point here. Exile. The single word answer. And it is, it's exactly... <laughs> What Andrew says, but you use two words, Andrew. <laughs> it is exactly what he says. But the single word explanation for this whole scenario, Deuteronomy 17, listen to God's warning to the Israelites all those years ago. If you are drawn away and bow to other gods to worship them, verse 18, what does he promise them? You won't live in this land. You're out. And so there's Shadrach, here's Meshach, and here's Abednego, and they know, they felt the pain of exile, they felt the sting of the sins of their ancestors. They know, they would have heard the fathers, the mothers, their uncles, sitting in them and saying, son, son, I want you to remember this, we are here in this prison because we bowed to other gods. And I'm telling you, son, if it costs you your life, you do not bow your knee to any God but the God of heaven. And so here he is. How could he, how could he possibly arouse God's anger further? Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have understood something of the greatness, the holiness, of God. And I want to suggest, friends, that this response to the king is a response demonstrating reverence for God, which is marked by unconditional obedience to his word. And that obedience means it'll take them, if necessary, all the way to death. 
verse 19, that Nebuchadnezzar was furious. I mean, remember, he's given them a second chance, hasn't he? These are, these are the guys he was favorable toward, but now, I mean, this is absolute humiliation. You can almost imagine the scene, can't you? He's brought them forward, they're before him, he's before all his entourage there. And he's like, like you know, yes, you know, yeah, of course, of course they'll bow to me. They defy him. So the fury, the absolute fury of Nebuchadnezzar comes out, his attitude towards him changed, and he says, you know, tie them up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego throw them into the furnace. Reverence for God. Here's the point. Here's what we're getting. We're going to stop there in Daniel just for now. But the point is this, friends. Reverence for God is marked by unconditional obedience to God's word. So we're looking through Daniel, and we're always asking this question. Whenever we interact with the Bible, any part of the Bible, what's this telling me about Jesus? It's the question we're always asking, is how we read the Bible. No matter where we're reading, we're always asking, the only person we're interested in in the Bible is Jesus. That doesn't mean we're not interested in anything else that's going on. Our primary interest in Jesus, and so we're asking ourselves, as we always have, how, look, we know how Daniel points to Jesus, we saw it last week, and we can understand that he's the quintessential Jesus figure, but Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Abednego? Someone tell me, are they in any sense possibly typology? Can we see anything of a type of Christ in these three men in this scenario? Can we? How, Chris? And elaborate it for, under... Under unanimous pressure and duress. They are willing to obey the king, disobey the king, in reverence for another. Let me show you something about Jesus. We men are always, we've always uh, understood to this degree. Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Therefore, this is a conversation in eternity, okay? It's a conversation between Jesus and his Father. And I want you to listen to this. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire for me, you speaking of his Father, but a body you prepared for me, the body that he would inhabit to, to become a man, burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased with. Verse 7, listen to this. Here I am, speaking to his Father. It is written about me in the scroll, and I have come to do your will, O God. Does Shadrach... Do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tell us anything about Jesus, about their reverence for God and their obedience to God? Yes! Because here's Jesus. And the very reason, friend, can you see this? The very reason he's on our planet is because that is an act of what towards who? The very reason Jesus came to the planet, it was because it was an act of what towards who? It was an act of obedience towards God, the King, the fa his Father. And this is something we have to appreciate about Jesus' relationship with his Father. And Hebrews 10 is giving us a glimpse here. Look, we do believe in, and he, this may be new to you, we do believe in what we call the Trinity. Someone tell me, what is that? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one in absolute unity. We call that ontological equality. 
that there's absolute unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one God. It's called ontological unity. That there's a unity of absolute perf perfection in substance, but within that ontological unity or equality, there's what theologians call functional subordination. Have you come across that term? Ontological equality, functional subordination. Someone tell me, what do we mean by functional subordination? We know what subordination means, and what's, what do we mean? Functional subordination. Have a guess. Yeah. There's absolute equality in substance, but in order for them to be relate to one another in a functional manner, whereby the Trinity exists and works to achieve purposes, there has to be functionally subordination within the Trinity. There's hierarchy, there's order, there's structure. There is a leader, have you, do we understand this? There's a leader within the Trinity and there's followers within the Trinity. There's, ones, there's a one within the Trinity who issues commands and within the same Trinity of equality, two who obey. The Father speaks the son obeys. The very reason that he became a man was an act of obedience, subordination to his father. And he goes further, and this is how he relates to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because so Jesus is coming into our world, and as a technical term, I'm sorry for these, it's just worth remembering some of these. Incarnation means simply when he became flesh, when he became man. So his incarnation... He was at the will of his father. It goes further than that. I don't know how this will sit with us. Let me ask this question. Why did Jesus die for us? Someone tell me, sorry? Yes, it is partly that, and that is, that is an absolute proper answer, but it's something else. Someone give me the primary reason. Why did Jesus die for our sins? God's will. Because here's the one I always hear, and it's wrong. Oh, because he loves us. That is theologically incorrect as the primary reason for why Jesus died for us. It's a secondary cause. He does love us. The primary cause, thank you, Graham. The primary reason Jesus dies for us is because it's an act of obedience, subordination to the leader of the Trinity, the Father. Listen to this in Luke 22. So we know the story. He's in the garden. He's bowed in prayer. He's, he's dripping. He's, he's sweating blood. And listen to his relationship with Jesus. Ontologically equal, functionally subordinate. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me yet. Not my will, but yours be done. And Philippians 2 sums it up brilliantly. Philippians 2 verse 8 I think it's come up on the screen for you there. And being found in appearance as a man, which was in himself an act of obedience, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. You see, reverence for God, and we see this within the Trinity, is marked by unconditional obedience to his word. That is true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's true... For Jesus. 
And in almost parallel circumstances, do you remember when he stood before Pilate? Pilate, the great Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, don't you know I have the power over life and death? Just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, don't you know, look, I can release you guys. Just say the right thing. And how does Jesus respond to Pilate? You have no power over me. Absolute defiance for his obedience to God. He is the quintessential Shadrach, Mishael, and Abednego. Reverence for God is marked by unconditional obedience to his word. So we're left with a question, aren't we? Does my life reflect Jesus? I know we like to think, and I don't want to undermine the love of Jesus, but I know we like to think that, but, well, Jesus was all loving, wasn't he? So if I reflect love, I'm somehow reflecting Jesus? You've fallen short of the standard of Jesus. The question is, does my life reflect Jesus' reverence for the Father that leads to obedience to the Father. Absolutely. Back in the UK, I won't mention the church name or the gentleman who's involved, a huge church in Cambridge. There was a man there who'd been a missionary, a Christian. A missionary served God amazingly in these third world countries with his, med with his medical expertise. He's back in his home church now and so he's rising through the ranks and eventually the pastor of this church of about nearly a thousand people promotes him to the eldership or the leadership as we know it. And he's doing great there. And then one day he runs off with a nurse in the hospital. They try and try and try to bring him back on board and to get him to see the error of his ways. But to no avail. He never returned. He continued in his sin of adultery. Sometime later, perhaps years later, as this pastor was talking to another leading theologian and just asking, look, the, this theologian said to the pastor, look, you appointed him to the leadership of this church. What, what's your thoughts on that now? And the pastor responded, look, I've thought this through and I've concluded this. He was never a Christian. Because what? This guy's been a missionary. He's served the church faithfully. He's given up lots of stuff. And look at you yourself, made him a leader. And you're now saying he wasn't a Christian? He goes, yeah. He goes, when I look at his life, I can't find a single instance in his life when it cost him something to obey Jesus. You see, oh yeah, he gave his life to the Lord, but he just brought up in the church. Oh yeah, he went to mission fields, but that's what he wanted to do. He was a medic and he loved to use his skills of medicine and he went to this country, but that's because he liked that country and he was particularly disposed towards those people. And yes, he's in leadership, that's because he wanted power. Because when I look at his life, I cannot find a single instance in his life when to obey Jesus cost him something. And when he finally came to that crunch, when he had to make a choice between obeying Jesus and being sexually fulfilled? He chose sexual fulfillment. You see, 
the quintessential mark of my faith in Jesus. It's not all love, man. I mean, you've got to quantify love. It's my readiness to obey to the ultimate degree. You see, reverence for God is marked by unconditional obedience to his words. Does my life reflect that? Let me ask you, is my life, your life, is the distinctive of our lives that we obey Jesus, whatever the cost? Let me take it further back. What is the what is, what is it to become a Christian? What is the quintessential mark? What brought us into faith? Somebody, let me ask this question. What brought us into relationship with Jesus? It is about relationship, absolutely. What brought us into that relationship? What proves that relationship is ongoing? What proves I really, really love Jesus? Someone tell me, what proves I... Because love is a cheap word. What proves I love him? That's the word. You, you keep stealing my thunder. Stop it. <laughs> Seriously. Okay? You're banned for three weeks. Okay? <laughs> John 14, 15. That's exactly what you said. And thank you to Bron. It's exactly what you just said, Pamela. Thank you. I love you, really. If you love me, you will obey my command. And he said exactly the same way Jesus expresses his, his love for his father. How do we know that Jesus loves his father? Someone tell me, how can I be convinced that Jesus loves his father? Yeah, but is, that, is, that is the ultimate answer. Yes, 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 yes. Next verse, listen to this. Look, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And the next one, please. The world must learn that I love the father, not because I just blow kisses to him, but because I obey the Father. I'll pay the Father. Look, here's our passion as Christians in this church. We want to make disciples for Jesus. Hands up, someone who hasn't a passion here for wanting to make disciples for Jesus. Okay? <laughs> who doesn't want to? No one, okay? How do we make disciples for Jesus? How do we make disciples for Jesus? It's in Matthew 28. Before it comes up on the screen, someone tell me, how do we make disciples for Jesus? We go into all the world and we preach. And what, what, what do we do? What is the thing that moves a, moves a person from one side of life and death to the other side? What is the singular aspect of making disciples? Teach them to obey. Thank you, Jesus. That's the gospel. Listen. Don't, don't take, look, if I ever say anything to you, just, just, just ignore me, okay? Unless I'm quoting Jesus, just don't take any notice of anything I say, seriously. But listen to Jesus. Go and make disciples. Christian, we want to make disciples. Rivergate Christian community, we want to make disciples. We will not make them any other way but through teaching them to obey Jesus. It's the bedrock of our faith. It's why we can 
hang, banging in this mantra is that we're a word-based church, we're a word-based church, we're a word-based church, because it is what makes disciples, what keeps us together is the Bible. It's relationship, yes. It's a loving relationship, yes. But a loving relationship that's anchored in, based in, shaped by the word of Jesus. And my time is up. I need to close. Shaped by the word of Jesus. And so the, the challenge I want to put to us is, am I genuinely in faith? You see, because if it's all just relationship, man, hey, I want to know, how do you know you're in relationship? How do you know you're really in a loving relationship with Jesus? Because the word of Jesus governs my life. And that means, let me give you some practical tips just before I close. It means that if I work in an office and the secretary wants me to go on a date with her and I'm married, the word of God shapes my response. It means if I'm at school and all my fellow pupils are sleeping with their girlfriends and it's pressure on me to do so, it means the word of God shapes how I conduct myself. It means it shapes how I conduct myself towards the state. Do you know that as a Christian, the Bible dictates how we relate to the state in reverence and submission? I know there may be terrible people, but the Bible instructs us to respond to them in obedience. And insofar as we're responding in obedience to the state, we're responding in obedience to Jesus. How do I know I'm a genuine Christian? Because in the way I relate to other people, it's Governed by the Bible. How do I know we're really worshipping Jesus on Sunday morning? Because what we do is governed by the Bible. It's the quintessential mark of our faith. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego demonstrate for us what reverence for God, genuine faith, is marked out by his obedience to his word. And we see that most definitively in the life of Jesus, the ultimate example of one who obeys the Father at the most highest and ultimate cost is death. In chapter in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 3, we see that they're thrown into the fire and Jesus is walking with them. I haven't got time to go into it now, but just to say this, friends, the one assurance the word gives us that when our lives are sold out to obedience to Jesus, at whatever the cost, we can be certain that Jesus is with us in whatever trial that obedience lands us up in. We want to be sure Jesus is with us in the trial of our lives, in the difficulties we're facing. Whenever we put his word first, his promise is he's with us to see us through however challenging that scenario. Put the word first. Love Jesus, but that that love be governed by the word of Jesus. Take him as the example. If you want to know, am I in faith? We're in faith in Jesus. If our passion is to be in relationship to Jesus, that is governed by the Bible. God bless you.